This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 37 of Inside COVID-19. This episode, on a day when South Africa's confirmed infections rose above 19,000, Discovery's chief actuary and a critical care expert from WITS assess the country's tough road ahead. We revisit the Maritzburg ventilator-making company and find out its offer to produce the life-saving equipment is now being drowned in a sea of South African red tape. There's baby steps for a travel sector that was paralyzed by coronavirus lockdowns. And we'll have an analysis on the role of super-spreading events like music concerts and soccer games. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. First in the COVID-19 headlines today, after two relatively slow increases, South Africa's new coronavirus cases rose by 1,134 on Thursday. That's the second highest daily increase thus far. A further 30 deaths were registered. That's the highest for a single day, taking the total to 369. Globally, a total of 331,000 mortalities have now been registered, with Mexico emerging as a new hotspot with 424 on Thursday, the highest in one day for any country. Although the rate of growth in infections has been falling, in both of these countries, COVID-19 deaths are still high in the UK, which registered 338 yesterday, second behind Mexico, and the United States, which came in with 320. Those two countries have been the hardest hit, with 95,000 mortalities in the US and 36,000 in Britain. Lockdown-free Sweden, whose alternative approach is being closely monitored, appears to be well past the worst, with 40 deaths yesterday. That's around a quarter of the daily peak reported in mid-April. Back home, the South African Reserve Bank has announced another 50 basis point reduction to 3.75% in the country's key interest rate, the repurchase or repo rate. Commercial banks followed suit immediately, further reducing the cost of borrowing for people in a struggling economy. The Saab's decision, however, was not unanimous with three members of the Monetary Policy Committee prevailing against the two who wanted a cut of only 25 basis points. The latest reduction follows 100 basis point cuts in both March and April. The South African Reserve Bank said it expects South Africa's economy to contract by 7% in 2020, that's slightly worse than the negative 6.1% forecast last month. It also expects widespread job losses. Although mortalities and infections have peaked in many countries, the economic fallout from the COVID-19 crisis continues to grow. In the United States, 2.4 million workers filed for jobless benefits last week, taking the total job losses there in the past nine weeks to 38 million. New weekly claims, however, have been declining since the peak of 6.9 million registered in March, 
and all 50 states have started to reopen their economies. In Europe, Germany and France are asking the European Union to issue $550 billion in new debt to finance a recovery fund. Euroland's economy is expected to contract by 9% this year, with a full recovery expected to take some years. After this week's news that many South African townships are simply ignoring lockdown regulations and apart from wearing the occasional mask, people are continuing life as before, Trade Union Solidarity reports that thousands of its members have signed a public statement demanding that they be allowed to return to work. The union's chief executive, Dirk Herman, says Solidarity members at the ArcelorMittal steel plant in Funabel Park showed up for work en masse Thursday with protective masks and hand sanitizers. Part of Solidarity's campaign to put pressure on government to allow those who can work safely to be allowed to do so. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Emil Stipp is the chief actuary of Discovery, who's in London at the moment. We know, Emil, that Discovery's got a a massive organization in the UK, Vitality. But how come you ended up that side of the water? I spent typically half my time in London, half in South Africa. And uh, I was in London at the time when lockdown was implemented. So I've been here for a few weeks in desperate need of a haircut. But, uh, you know, carrying on. How different is it to what you hear from colleagues back home? So I think it is quite different because here we, we're in the thick of an epidemic. So we are experiencing the the effects of COVID itself. In South Africa, I think uh, what people are experiencing is the effects of lockdown, not the epidemic itself. It was certainly noticeable here in London how not only is it a very strange place with the whole city closed down, but also you hear the sirens, um, you're just aware of the fact that there are people going to hospital. The media reports are also very worrying because you the effects of the epidemic are certainly visible. The effects also on the mind, no doubt. Here in South Africa, we're only at, as you know, uh, around 300 deaths, whereas in the UK it's 30,000. Yeah. Presumably we can end up there at some point. Yeah, the, I think, I mean, that, that is the difficult thing. If one looks forward, you know, it's so hard to say how it plays out in different countries. If you look at 20 January 2020, that was the first day on which South Korea reported their first coronavirus case. 21st of January was the first day on which the United States reported uh, their first confirmed case. And look how different it is now. So in South Korea, we have, I think, 263 people that have died. And in the United States, it's 93,000. And the difference in all of that, I think, is almost purely attributable to government response. That's really what determined it. So when the U.S. went into lockdown, So I think similarly in South Africa, we went into lockdown very early. That's a very good thing because it saved many lives. In the UK, government waited too late. And for that reason, there was a lot of community transmission. And for that reason, it's very hard to control. The the big question now is what happens from this point onwards. So as South Africa emerges from lockdown, how does it play out? But certainly, if you've, uh, if, you've, if you've been in the environment where it is experience, it's, it's not to be taken lightly. I think uh, people should be careful, and if they're vulnerable, they should avoid you know, getting infected at all costs. There's a big debate, as you well know, in South Africa about the economic costs versus the, the health costs. 
the unique perspective that you've got sitting over there and uh, being the chief actuary of Discovery will give you insights perhaps that the rest of us can benefit from. How are you reading it? Well, the, I think, I mean, the, the two are related. So, the, so I don't think it's one versus the other necessarily. So, so firstly, excess deaths have an e- economic cost as well. I don't think one should forget that. At the same time, there's a very interesting study that was released based on NHS data in the UK, which is fascinating. And it's probably the biggest study that we've seen so far. What they looked at is what were the factors that uh, that were predictive of death for people who got COVID and got admitted. They looked at 17 million patient records and analyzed about 6,000 deaths. And one of the factors that stood up clearly there, just all other factors, was deprivation. So basically people's socioeconomic conditions. So I think to the extent that lockdown worsens that, or the extension of lockdown worsens that, it does have a cost. It does also have tend to have worse COVID outcomes. There is certainly there's a trade-off there. But it's very difficult to make these decisions because I think it also depends on how you can manage the disease once you emerge from lockdown. So is contact tracing available? What does one do with that? You know, if you if you can track whether people have come into contact, to what extent can you actually help them to isolate, to stop spreading the disease? All of those are big questions. It depends on so many factors. So I wouldn't want to be in the position of having to make a decision. I think, you know, it, it really is very hard. A Gordian knot, um, impossible to unravel. But as far as individuals are concerned, you've got the Discovery Resilience Index, which is very helpful for those of us who are trying to do what we can to build a shield for ourselves against this horrible virus. How, how did you come about doing that? Sure. So, the, so what we've done is to, to look at our data as it emerges, basically in South Africa and in the UK. We also we we obviously read a lot of international studies emerging, and at the moment we're still within our insured populations. We have only a small number of hospital admissions relative to the to the whole population. What was interesting to me though, though is that. You know, typically you'd have to wait for quite a lot of data before you construct a model and before you try to make predictions on the basis of that. But even with our limited data, we could see some very clear indicators there. So it confirmed what has been reported worldwide, which is that it's very dependent on age. So the risk of admission, if you get COVID, it certainly goes up significantly with age, older you are, the higher the risk. But what we also observed is things such as body mass index playing a big role. So the more your body mass index is within within the right range, the lower your risk. If you have chronic conditions, particularly diabetes, that also plays a, plays a role. And the one benefit that we have in our data because of vitality is that we do actually have people's real exercise data. So what we could also see is that engagement in vitality programs, so the extent to which people exercise, lead a healthy lifestyle, all that lowest risk. So what you have is if you compare somebody, say, in the age range, a male in the age range between 40 and 49, versus somebody in the same in the age range 60 to 69, what our data shows in South Africa is that by having a healthy lifestyle, if you're in that age range, you can lower your risk to 20 years younger, more or less. What's interesting is that even in the UK, with a different set of data, completely different circumstances, we observe similar trends. 
And that gives us more confidence in saying that this, this does seem to be real. As the data develops, as we have more admissions data, we will continuously update these models. And I think what will change over time is the relativities, but the message will remain the same. So the bottom line is that if you, if you do have chronic conditions, you should be especially careful. If you're older, you should be careful. However, the way to reduce your risk is to maintain a healthy body weight, to exercise, to eat healthily. All of those factors do seem to make a significant difference. Is there a, an amount of exercise that you should be doing or a body mass index which is going to be giving you those 20 years? Uh, yes, so, so you should keep your BMI below 30. Um, that's, the, the, that's the sort of uh, observation that we make in the data. And in terms of exercise, it's almost linear. Remember I said we don't have that much data, but what we can tell at this stage, for instance, if you exercise more than four times a week, half an hour at a time, um, you know, the sort of normal guidance as to what counts as an exercise session, that's more than four times a week, then certainly you can, you can, you know, meet that requirement or basically reduce your risk to, to almost 20 years younger. And eating? There, what we're looking at is, uh, it's sort of, it's hard to express, but it's a sort of uh, composite index of your healthy food basket. And there what we have found is that it's all about avoiding unhealthy foods, so confectionery, unhealthy carbs. But if there's a lot of vegetables, healthy protein, healthy carbs in your in your diet, that is a, a higher percentage than the average. And that's also that's also a good indicator. Is there a app or some way that, that people can download and input their own uh, number of the uh, discovery resilience. Yeah, so, so, we, so we're doing two things. The one is that we, in the background, out of our data, we have already identified people that are particularly vulnerable. And also, if one of their family members have been affected with COVID because we get the testing results, we have been calling out and advising people about being careful. Uh, the other thing I should mention is that both in our own data and also internationally, if you do suffer from other conditions, so, for instance, if you if you have cancer, then obviously it's very important to to try and stay safe, particularly. But having said that, so the, so in the background for the very high risk individuals, we have been trying to communicate with people almost on a one to one basis. But what we are doing though is publishing a, this resilience index. Um, we're hoping to have it out on our website fairly soon. And as I say, as the data develops, we will we will update it all the time. But uh, we certainly think that people should get this advice. It may not be statistically a perfect model yet, but it's, uh, you know, what harm is there in telling people, be careful if you fall into one of these categories. Emil, what do you think the best way will be to handle this pandemic going forward? In theory, the best way is to do contact tracing and when people come into contact with the disease that you isolate. That's what South Korea did. Um, they never actually went into lockdown in South Korea. They just said that they, they just canceled sort of public events. The economy sort of carried on, but they did. Whenever it was traced that you came into contact with somebody that tested positive, you were, you were basically not even allowed to isolate at home. You were put in a hospital to be isolated there. And because they did that early, it was possible to do that. Now it's too late for many Western countries and for, for even for South Africa, I think it's very difficult to do that. So in the absence of contact tracing with isolation, 
the only alternative that you have is social distancing, not having public gatherings, and then trying to say that for vulnerable people, you should try and protect them as, as much as possible. So people in old age homes, you know, you might have seen in the, in the British press, that was a big issue here, uh, in the sense that they didn't even report deaths in, in, in care homes until quite late into, into the epidemic already. So th- that is the only alternative. You have to say to people with chronic conditions, older people, that actually, you know, for, for until there's a vaccine, it's not really safe for you to go out and to be in contact with the rest of, of society. The extent to which that can be enforced is, you know, is very difficult. What we have certainly found far more useful is to look at countries that have managed the epidemic well versus those that haven't, what's different between them, when you look at their, their relative ages, how can you then tell what would happen going forward? So I'll give you a, a quick example of this, and because both of these countries are obviously close to us. We, so if you just do a back-of-the-envelope calculation on where the UK is in the epidemic now, the UK is older than South Africa, so you would expect a higher number of deaths in the UK. Uh, our estimate of the mortality rate, the national mortality rate for COVID-19 in the UK is 1.1%. In South Africa, it's 0.38%, so quite significantly lower. But if you look at that and if you make these sort of adjustments, as of yesterday, if we were at the same stage of the epidemic as the UK, we would have had about 11,000 people dead in South Africa. And that tells you basically how well South Africa has managed the epidemic up until now, given how many people have died right at the moment. So it doesn't mean that we won't get to that 11,000 stage. It's just that we've had far more time to prepare for it. I think there were some really good decisions made to go into lockdown in South Africa early, rather than, you know, letting all the politics play out as it has in in other, you know, countries. The president keeps telling us that the early move has saved lives. Can one quantify that yet? Well, the, I think that's where the, that's where these uh, these sort of epidemiological models come into it. So there's a mathematical relationship between the reproduction rate and the total number of people who die. So that's the the sort of keeping the curve low or squashing the curve that everybody has, has been talking about. And it's easy to demonstrate that from just the maths of how these of how an epidemic spreads. So certainly the the, the so far definitely lives have been saved. I think the question, though, is whether we can keep the R0, the reproduction rate, low. So if, as a society and together with the government, we can achieve that, then certainly there will be many lives saved in the process. If not, then, then basically we will, we will trend towards the experience in other countries. It obviously does come at a cost to keep the R0 low. And I think it depends a lot on so many other factors whether it can be achieved in practice. But I think still the, the possibility is there. It's not too late. Inside COVID-19, from News. As cases of COVID-19 is increasing in South Africa, with some predictions that the worst case scenario is a million cases with 40,000 deaths, BizNews asked an expert in critical care in South Africa, a professor emeritus at Wits University, Professor Guy Richards, who is advising the university's academic hospital on critical care about these predictions and what can be expected in the coming months. Professor Richards also weighs in on the treatments like hydrochloroquine and remdesivir, which he says he's not excited about, and about whether school children are at risk of COVID-19. 
Well, look, I'm not an auditor or an actuary or anything else like that, and I don't know how they calculate their figures, but that would indicate that they would be looking at approximately a million infections by the time November or whenever it is comes around. Now, that would mean that we would be having one-fifth of the current world's population's uh, infections. And I just think that, to me, that sounds very unlikely, but I'm not going to make pronouncements on it because they're very clever mathematical people and they're using models and they're deciding on how it is going to work. I also don't think that they've taken into account factors like wearing masks out there and whether that's going to decrease the uh, the transmission rate. But to me, it, it seems unlikely, but I'm not going to discount and say that it isn't going to occur. Critical care is your speciality. Is there a possibility of shortages of critical care and IC units going forward? Well, certainly there will be. Cape Town's currently undergoing their surge. Gauteng hasn't yet started the surge. Cape Town is under huge pressure from an ICU point of view. But do you remember that in South Africa, we've got very few actual intensivists anyway. Mostly the ICUs are managed either by anesthetists or by general physicians. And so a lot of the expertise is not there anyway. But I would foresee that when the ICUs are completely full, then one would have to to perform some form of triage, which would mean that you would have to be selecting patients that are most likely to survive, or should I rather say deselecting those that are least likely to survive. I listened yesterday to a U.S. expert, Dr. William Hasseltine, talking about that there used to be almost a 90% mortality rate if you are on a ventilator, but they've managed to bring that down to about 30%, he said. Yeah, well, I think that that was because of the fact that they immediately ventilated or put patients onto a mechanical ventilator as soon as they were hypoxemic or their oxygen levels were low. That was thought to be the ideal practice initially. But in fact, what we've been doing is seeing if we can avoid putting the patients onto mechanical ventilation. So we will be starting therapy on them and we will be at the same time giving them uh, other options like high-flow nasal cannulas or CPAP uh, or even just a plain nasal cannula initially to see whether they can maintain their oxygenation. And at the same time, we get them to turn themselves over into the prone position, which also improves uh, oxygenation. And in very many cases, we can avoid actually necessity for ventilation. The whole idea is to try and get on top of the hyperinflammatory response, the hyperinflammatory phase, before it leads to a situation where you require mechanical ventilation. And if you can, well, then you've got a much better prognosis. Are some people actually dying of heart attacks and cancer that are reported as COVID-19 cases? I'm sure that people are dying of heart disease and cancer because they're not prepared to come to hospital worrying about catching COVID. I think that a large number of patients with non-communicable diseases are not being adequately treated at the moment. Certainly in South Africa, a large number of patients are not coming to hospital to collect their HIV medicine, for example. So those patients, uh, both HIV and TB, Uh, There's an urgent search for those patients to go out and find them to actually make them come and get their therapy. Do remember that from the other point of view, that COVID-19 can actually precipitate heart attacks 
because it does also have an effect on the heart and on your coagulation system. So it could itself cause heart attacks. There's no evidence that it causes cancer, and I would doubt very much that people are being having their deaths recorded as being COVID if they happen to come in with cancer. So when we get a patient who comes in and dies, we would swab them and we would assess to see whether in fact they were positive or not positive. I, I think that there are very few that are being mislabeled. A lot has been written recently about the various treatments for COVID-19. What is being used in South Africa and what are your views on these different treatments? Well, lots of people are still using hydroxychloroquine because it does have efficacy in the lab. It's been shown in the lab to inhibit growth of the uh, of the virus, but that's looking at a, a non-in vivo situation. In other words, not when it's been given to to humans. There was a lot of excitement by that French investigator, Gautre, who performed a study which showed that there was benefit in terms of outcome and mortality. But that was a very poorly performed study, and it was certainly has not been reproducible. And now there have probably been at least five studies saying that hydroxychloroquine is of no value either in patients who have severe disease or even in mild disease. Some people have been taking it like Trump as prophylaxis. There's also no evidence at all that it works as prophylaxis. And certainly patients who have been on it have been recorded as having caught COVID-19 anyway. So to me, I'm not at all excited about hydroxychloroquine. I don't think it's of value. Its primary use is in the management as a disease-modifying agent in autoimmune conditions, and there may well be a shortage of it in that setting. But I, I really don't think that there's good evidence at all that it actually works. And two recent studies published in the BMJ also showed exactly the same thing. So I just want to mention Remdesivir as well. Remdesivir is an American uh, drug, made drug, as you know. It's made by Gilead. The FDA authorized it for emergency use prior to the publication of the ACT study, which we still haven't seen. So the ACT study is we are still awaiting, and we don't know truly whether it actually showed benefit or not. The one published published by Wang, which was from China in Lancet, recently had 437 people that were planned to be enrolled and they only managed to enroll 237 because they, their epidemic had decreased so they couldn't find enough patients to actually put it in. So it was therefore underpowered to make any sort of qualified statement about its efficacy and what they did is they then took subgroups which made even smaller numbers and then they looked to see whether if it was given before or after 10 days after the onset of symptoms. And they then found a non-significant trend towards benefit in patients who took it before or within the 10-day period after the onset of symptoms. Very unexciting, no mortality difference or anything. So it's expensive, it's got to be given intravenously, and unless the ACT study comes out and shows something really spectacular, I don't think it's going to be an important benefit in terms of therapy. There's no miracle cure or treatment Nothing right now. Nothing as yet. Nothing as yet. So if we can now look at the future, where are we in South Africa with critical care? Are we going to cope? When is the peak coming? What are you expecting? Well, the peak's going to come at different times in different areas. And as I say, Cape Town is already undergoing their surge. Currently, they're sort of running at about maximum. 
one has to hope that patients will get better at the same rate as new admissions are coming in. Otherwise, yes, they will be overwhelmed and then there's going to be a major problem. Certainly, private hospitals are going to have to be brought on board. And from the public hospital point of view, that when they are overrun, private hospitals will have to be taking in patients as well. And we just have to then manage, as other countries have done, even though the health services have been overwhelmed. For example, in New York and in Italy, we're just going to have to cope. We're a big believer in the use of corticosteroids at the time that patients present with pneumonia. They shouldn't receive corticosteroids if they have the early phases of the disease. But if they do come in with pneumonia and they've got hypoxemia, their oxygen levels are low, we start corticosteroids early. And there have been two studies now which have demonstrated benefit and a reduction in mortality. And so that, we feel, is, is the way to, to go in order to try and decrease progression to the hyperinflammatory phase, which is the phase at which the, most of the mortality actually occurs. Thereafter, we're also using, or some of us are using, a, a monoclonal antibody directed against a specific aspect of the inflammatory response. No, it's a monoclonal used for rheumatoid arthritis, and we've seen quite a little bit of success using it in that setting as well. So there are therapies that will treat the actual response that the patient has, whereas we don't, as far as I believe, have any effective antiviral therapies. So now with lockdown being lifted, are you expecting four more cases? I mean, certainly Cape Town, I doubt, is going to come out of stage five. They're going to be kept in there because they're really surging. And we're going to move to a stage three, which is really not a massive lift. Some of the school children will be going back, and but we don't believe that that's actually going to cause a major problem, either to the school children or to the other people involved. In other words, they're very unusual for a child to bring home the virus to the parents or to the grandparents. But older people are still going to be encouraged to stay at home. We're still going to be using masks. Only certain people are going to be allowed to, to go to work. It's not a full lifting of lockdown. It's going to be a, a staged or a gradual lifting. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Well, some weeks ago, I had a fascinating interview with Ian Ambler, who is from Clifford Machines and Technology based in Peter Maritzburg. And at the time, Ian, you were telling me about the ventilator that you guys had shelved because it was impossible to get through the corruption and the other obstacles to start putting this into South African hospitals. Then there was quite a lot of interest in the ventilator. Just take us through the story up to that point. We also have uh, your partner, Graham Rayner, who is in the interview today. But let's just unpack from the beginning what happened subsequent to that interview of ours. Well, Alec, we got this sort of call to arms from the South African government saying that there was a desperate need for ventilators and could uh, private companies help, etc., etc. Um, we then, obviously having produced them before, rolled up our sleeves and revived the project as quickly as we could. We worked extremely hard. We had to update the, the old control system and software to current day technology. We've done all that. We built a prototype unit in a matter of weeks, two weeks, had it up and running, uh, was under test, perfected the software, 
tested it. The doctors went through all the careful calibration and testing and confirmation that you have to do with an item like this. We then built a second unit. After the prototype, we built a second, um, what we call a pre-production unit, which was a completely engineered unit as it would be. So we could go into production with 500 or 5,000 units or whatever they would be exactly as per that first pre-production unit. So we put an enormous effort into that, Alec. We put an enormous amount of time, investment into that. I really feel proud of what was accomplished by our team. In our opinion, it has completely achieved all the objectives. It works extremely well. It is a complete intensive care unit ventilator with all the requirements of an intensive care uh, ventilator. It works. It's proven. We are ready to make more. Sadly, that is where the thing has ended. It has died in uh, red tape and total lack of leadership or direction from the government. It's been the most unbelievably frustrating situation. But I'm just the technical guy. I'm the engineer. My partner, Graham Raynor, is far better qualified to go through the tragic realities of what came afterwards. Graham, take us through that. <clears throat> yeah, Alec, I think, you know, as Ian alluded to, we, you know, there was this call to arms which uh, came from government via the DTI. They created a, a group that they called the National Ventilator Project. The National Ventilator Project put out uh, their specifications and invited people to tender on it. As part of that whole process, uh, there was a Zoom meeting with all interested parties where they really went through in quite a lot of detail about the specifications, what they wanted, what they didn't want, and what they expected. The one thing that was never really dealt with was this whole issue of uh, SAPRA certification, SAPRA being the South African Health Products Regulatory Agency, which was formed in 2016 and is the body through which you have any medical device and I believe pills and anything to do with medicine has to be certified by them before you can A, manufacture or B, distribute into South Africa. At the time, the MVP was, it was basically a matter of we will fast track the process. And we kind of took that at face value. Um, I did, however, afterwards follow up with them and say, uh, you know, if, we, if we're not a successful bidder, would the NVP still, you know, consider those people who weren't successful to try and help this fast-tracking process? Lots happened in the interim. I didn't hear from them further on that issue, except that they said that, you know, they would pass it onto their steering committee and respond to me, which they didn't. Skip forward a few weeks, the development's all done, and we're nearing the, the sort of finish line in terms of having a commercially available product. And, of course, we're now starting to delve into the intricacies of getting the certification. Now, my understanding of it is that SAPRA is still committed to the fast-tracking process. But my understanding of the fast-tracking is merely that under normal circumstances, say a year ago, if they got a medical device, they would get all the requirements from, from the manufacturer and then, yes, you know, spend five or six weeks ticking all the boxes, making sure that everything's right, and then give their certification. The fast tracking is merely a matter of that they would uh, shorten that period. And in fact, the requirements, it seems, have not been relaxed at all. 
The problem that we're faced with is very simple. For us to do all of that stuff, we've got a consultant involved. It's no use us trying to do it ourselves because we're not close to SAPRA. We have to get somebody who understands the process. We get a consultant involved. All the costs to do the set, the testing, to get the certifications in place like the ISO certifications, it's a million bucks plus. And we're not just going to get that done in, in two weeks. You know, we got an ISO 9001 certification many, many years ago. It was an eight-month process. So we find ourselves in a situation where we can spend a million bucks plus, take three, four, five, six, eight months to get this done, and then suddenly we find, and here's the crux of the matter, the SAPRA certification is a limited certification. It is only for use during the crisis. Once the crisis is deemed to be over, who calls that, I wouldn't know. But once it's deemed to be over, that certification falls away and we may no longer utilize it as justification to sell that product uh, into the South African market. It does seem crazy, all of this, yeah? Alec, the part of this that, you know, almost, it, it, it makes my head want to explode. Yesterday, the government released these numbers where they are saying that they need between 20,000 and 35,000 ICU beds um, in between from June onwards. You know, an ICU bed without an ICU ventilator is useless in a COVID-19 crisis. So where are they going to get the 20,000 to 35,000 ventilators from? The part of it that, that, as I said, makes my head want to explode is we can make ventilators and we are not making a single ventilator at the, at the moment. Not just us, but there are a number of other very talented, reputable companies out there in South Africa who have also, like us, been working extremely hard on developing their ventilators. And there's some very good ones. I know that. And, and we've been in contact with some of those other companies. Like us, they are equally in the dark, equally confused. They have been wading through mud for the last two months, wondering why nothing is happening. We have no idea what is going on in the state's mind. You know, perhaps by some happy miracle, they have managed to get 35,000 ventilators and everything's under control. And, and I'm an idiot chasing rainbows for nothing. However, if that is the case, then they should tell us. You know, we are not the enemy. We are the people who have rolled up our sleeves, responded to their call to arms, invested an enormous amount of time, money and effort in the lockdown period, which has cost our company dearly. It's not a time when uh, companies want to be squandering money. And we did it. And we did it with the best of intentions as a response to this call to arms from the state. And we did it with altruistic motives without question. You know, to now be sitting in the space where we have developed this thing and put in an enormous effort and it's working so well. And yet our own country will not accept it. So we are looking at getting it accepted through the American FDA system is, is a level of insanity, which is, it's, it's difficult to comprehend. We're in the trenches now and the gunfire is coming overhead. And the way the approach to this has been akin to a bunch of privates in the trenches turning around to each other and saying, you know what, we need to fire back, but let's speak to the lieutenant. And the lieutenant has said, right, we need to form a steering committee um, and decide what we're going to fire back with. And once they've made their decisions, they've sent a memo to headquarters, the generals sitting on the back line, 
to say, this is what we want to do. And the generals have come back and said, okay, pretty good suggestion, but you know what? We need to just check out these weapons that you're suggesting. The fact of the matter is that if we were in that reality, we would be picking up the closest available weapon and returning fire. And this analogy, it is a war. You know, it's a very close analogy. You know, and to steal from Ian, you know, Ian said to me the other day, he said some of the biggest technical advances during the course of human history happened during World War II. When people said, came out and said, we need to make sure we have the right equipment to win this war. And, you know, huge advances in things like radar, airplane technology, uh, the Germans were the first to develop rockets towards the end of the, of the war. Um, and all of those advances in technology, a lot of advances in technology in military and defense, generally then start to feed, feed into the rest of society. But you know what? They had a goal, they had a focus, and they had one very important issue, implementation. And that's what we are missing here. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In the countries where the coronavirus is starting to level off, slow steps are being taken to open up economies and open countries' borders. Spain, which relies heavily on tourism, has announced that it is planning to open its borders by the end of June. And low-cost British airline EasyJet has announced that it will resume cross-border flights from four European countries in the middle of June. And passengers and the crew will have to wear masks, but the middle seat will not be blocked out. The CEO of the website Travago, Axel Heffer, told Bloomberg host Carol Masser that people are starting to take baby traveling steps and they have come up with novel ideas on how to get people used to the idea of traveling again. So what we do see actually on our side is that in certain regions there are a few people starting to re-engage and, and think about traveling again. And the, the, the most um, common searches that we see, and still at a very low level, are basically from metropolitan areas into more remote areas. Mm. So, so getting out of the crowds and staying in a vacation rental or in a hotel or in a, in a small hotel or in an apartment and, and really increase the distance to others, but also get out of the, the lockdown situation where many people have been uh, in their home for eight, nine, and ten weeks, um, and, and some even a bit longer, and just want to, to get out there, get to the nature. And that's what you see right now. And um, in Europe in particular, there is more focus on uh, a month from now, travel time a month from now. So basically securing some time outside of, of home for the summer break. That, that's what we are seeing. There are very, very short travel times, so mm-hmm. really tomorrow and the day after, where there is very high certainty that, that you can actually do very short trips to see families, etc. And then there is, is uh, quite a bit of activity for a few weeks out, really, to schedule for the summer break. So we, we made um, some quick fixes to our existing product, and um, our existing product is basically built on you know where you want to go, and then we help you to find the best time and the best place to stay. So. Mm-hmm. There we, we added a lot more rates that offer free cancellation, which is currently very important to travelers. But the bigger change is, um, is not live yet. So we started pretty much eight weeks ago, I'd say nine weeks ago, to work on, on a different product that is basically helping you to find 
nice places to stay and also um, nice places to go within driving distance. So wow. it's more a local traveling product where you can say, I'm in New York, but I want to go for a hike over the weekend. So what are places where I can go for a nice hike and what are the nice days that go with it? And that is from us, for us strategically, obviously, a bit more inspirational than our existing product. But we do think that it is very, very necessary to to help travelers to get step-by-step comfortable with safe travel again. Is that, Axel, a necessary, as you said, a first step to kind of getting us back in, okay, wait, we can travel safely? It, it, is, um, it is absolutely necessary. I mean, the way we are thinking about it is that, and every traveler is obviously slightly different, so, so I, I painted a bit black and white, but psychologically, all of us have been in a situation where we were we were trained that we should stay away from other people, that it is actually dangerous to be close to other people. And the situation is getting better in a lot of regions around the world. So it will, it, it, what is important is that you do small steps to get out of your comfort zone and get comfortable with a bit further away from home and a bit further. So this, this, um, this aspect of traveling somewhere that is close by, something that might be very familiar to you, is uh, from our perspective very important psychologically not really to to stretch yourself too far. Axel, what are the conversations though you're having with places, even if you're driving to them, to say, listen, you know, you've got to make sure that your facility is really safe and secure because if there are any problems, you know how social media, things will just go through social media very quickly and people say, it's not safe to go here or it's not safe to go there. So I am curious about what are the conversations that you're having with, you know, some of the places, you know, that I can go to your site and, you know, sign up to stay at. What are those conversations? So the, the, there I think the, um, the, the, the complication is, is, um, it's not that it is not safe to, um, to stay in accommodations, in hotels or in, in alternative accommodations from the large providers because everybody is very concerned about the safety of the travelers. Um, so there's a lot of effort put into exact cleaning standards, how many people can be where at, at which point in time, etc. Um, from my perspective, the bigger challenge is that there are very different um, regulations by country, but sometimes even by state or region. So the transparency about what to expect um, is very, very, um, very difficult. So, um, for example, in Germany, um, the the restrictions are lifted on a federal state level, but then in case of rising infections, they will be reimposed based on a city level. So you can have restaurants open in one city and they are closed in another city and they are open uh, but at a very limited um, occupancy um, in another city so it is it is the i think the accommodation the accommodation is safe is is um is a lower um less of an issue but it's more what is my overall experience is it actually even worth going at somewhere that is where where the transparency is missing and that that's something that we are we are uh, working on and, and trying to to help with inside COVID 19 from biz news We are also looking forward to big sporting events, open-air concerts, theatre, or to be able to go to a large family gathering 
or just paying respects to people who have died. But the experts say these are the places where the COVID-19 virus is at its happiest, where there are many people to infect. In fact, most of the mushrooming of the virus overseas can be attributed to what experts have come to dub as super spreader events. Bloomberg reporter Bojan Panchevsky explained to host Anne-Marie Fatoli what it means for a return to major events all over the world. So basically the concerts, you know, big sports events, but also private festivities that we wouldn't necessarily instinctively consider as such, such as weddings, funerals even, big dinner parties, birthday parties, all of these that I just mentioned have served as super spreader events also in the United States. And then you've got also the big issue about hospitals because when the virus starts spreading unnoticed within a hospital, the hospital becomes a super spreader event because it spreads through the staff across the board and that's obviously very dangerous. And finally, we have a huge issue with public transport. Some of the experts I interviewed said that the subway trains could turn into super spreading events because sometimes people stay on the train for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour or more. And obviously, we all know that very often, oftentimes, public transport, especially the underground trains, are cramped, they're crowded, they're full of people. And uh, that, that seems to be a potential liability. Well, it seems the coronavirus doesn't actually spread that easily. We have this famous reproduction number, the R, which sort of is an average number of people that one infected person will pass the virus on. So if I got ill, on average, it is assumed that I would pass the virus on two and a half up to three people. That's the natural speed of this virus that was estimated at the beginning. But now more and more researchers say that actually that is an average because the vast majority of people will not perhaps infect anyone. However, there will be a super spreader event where a huge number of people will get infected and then they will pass on the virus to an even greater number of people. So this seems to be a characteristic of this particular virus. And that means when people speak loudly, so not even shouting, but also kind of loudly speaking, they seem to be shedding more virus if they are infected, obviously. And this has been proven by various studies. So any event, any environment where there is loud speech could potentially turn into a super spreading event. And obviously that's sports activities, parties, you know, everything like that. But also it includes some, some factories, it includes, you know, everywhere where it's loud, people have to speak louder and therefore unwittingly they share the virus if they're infected. It would appear that the virus has accelerated rapidly because of these super spreading events. You know, some other viruses, some other pathogens spread through the population steadily. But this one seems to be spreading very suddenly and very forcefully when given a chance to sort of get into a super spreading event. And there, there are a number of those in Europe and America. Well, for example, in Italy, there was a massive soccer game in the city of Milan, uh, which is believed to have served as a petri dish for spreading the virus. And after that soccer game, literally thousands of people got ill and that region became one of the worst affected on earth. Then there was a smaller event in Germany. It was a carnival in the, in the county of Heinsberg in in the north uh, in in the southwest, where around 400 people, 
participated in this typical carnival celebration in, in sort of in a big beer hall. They were drinking, shouting, talking, singing, kissing each other as is tradition in that part of Germany. And then uh, weeks after that, uh, over 1,500 people got ill in the area and some of them died. Then you've had a number of soccer games in Great Britain, as well as a big horse race event, which was then sort of examined by researchers who, who established that in that vicinity where the horse racing happened and where the soccer games took place, mortality and the number of hospitalizations spiked drastically in comparison to other regions nearby. Then in the United States, of course, you've got a number of these events on record. I mean, most recently, I think we've had all these meat processing factories where, where hundreds of people, if not thousands, got infected across the United States. And that it, it is assumed that that's because they spend quite a lot of time inside in a place where the temperature is very low because it has to be low because of the meat and that that is a good atmosphere for the virus to thrive the thri the virus likes cold temperatures and of course because of the machinery because of the processing people have to shout so Bayan, as we're seeing places reopening or beginning to reopen what are the lessons that we can learn here what do researchers say about how to safely reopen again and hold events maybe not so large as the ones you've mentioned? Well, that's obviously the crucial question and it would appear that all the countries that reopened their economies and their societies after the lockdown in Europe have so far managed to keep the spread of the virus under control but what they all also have in common is that they have not yet allowed for mass gatherings of people. So some researchers are saying that could be the final proof that this is actually a very, very important measure. So some of these people I spoke to would advise the governments to not actually allow gatherings of people of over 100 persons until there is a vaccine because they suspect this could bring the virus back into this notorious exponential growth. So the lesson would appear that you can reopen the economy, people can go back to work, Shops can be open, factories can be open, but there needs to be great care in areas where people need to come back together in greater numbers. And definitely this doesn't bode well for sports events, concerts, nightclubs, all of these things. Of course, the decision whether to reopen them or not will be political and up to the authorities. This has been episode 37 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until Monday, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.